0: All right. How many are ready for the word? We're in a series about leadership, and I hope that it's been good for you. But here to continue the series, our associate pastor, Matt Belouson. Thank you, Pastor Roland. Good morning. Good morning. I see that hour caught up to you. I know we're all here, relying on the grace of God, um, but we can do it. We can do it together. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Amen. I know we all lost an hour. I lost five. So we can do it. We can do it by the grace of God. But thank you for joining us today. In spite of the fact that we sprung forward, we can spring forward in faith. Amen. We can spring forward in our leadership. Isn't that right? And that's exactly what God is calling us to do. We've been in this series called Learning to Lead. And um, in preparation for this series, I thought, hey, let me brush up on the topic of leadership. Let me go listen to some of my favorite speakers and podcasts. I'll go look up a few John Maxwell quotes that I love. Listen to my guy, Craig Rochelle. I'll be motivated to lead and to work out at the same time. And of course, we're part of the Every Nation family, so I needed to go to the Every Nation YouTube page. And I'm going through the list, and uh, Pastor Steve Murrow, our Every Nation President, does a leadership talk every single week. And one of those thumbnails stood out to me. It was a blue background with white letters on it, and Pastor Steve's face just looking at me. And uh, it asked the question, what is Christian leadership? What is Christian leadership? What does that look like? So I thought, that looks like the perfect thing because I can just steal the message. So, <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I'm not going to do that today. But um, I clicked on that video and I started to watch it and about six or seven seconds in I thought to myself before I let Pastor Steve tell me what the answer is I think I'll slow down and I'll ask God what Christian leadership is. And I'll even ask God to help me think through my own definition of Christian leadership. So I hit pause. I'm standing here in the living room while ashley is taking a nap. Wish well, she took more naps last night. Well I was there waiting for God to teach me and I press pause I ask myself self what is Christian leadership, and I thought about it long and hard and deep, and I realized that I had no idea, and that's pretty bad because I'm a Christian leader. I've been a Christian leader professionally for the last 10 years, so I should probably be able to define what a Christian leader is, so in my brief moment of discouragement and disappointment in myself, I turned to God, and I said, Lord, now teach me According to your word and what you've brought me through, what Christian leadership is supposed to look like. And as I prayed, it was like God began to stir up my heart and remind me of the things that I had been reading in my own time with God. And I had been reading through the first five books of the Bible uh, written by Moses. So it covers a lot of the life and the journey of Moses. And as I thought through the journey of Moses, each step along the way, it was like pieces of a definition of Christian leadership began to emerge for the life of one of the greatest leaders who has ever walked the face of this planet. And this morning, I'd like to bring you with me on that journey as we look at the life of Moses together. We'll answer that question, what is godly Christian leadership? And maybe we'll just start leading like Moses. But first, we're going to start in prayer. Join me. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for everyone here who wants to know you more, be known by you, God, I pray that you would raise us up to lead in the place we are called to and in the capacity, the capacity we're given in this season of our lives. Help us to learn what you want leadership to look like so we can find our place in how we can do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm having this moment with God now in my living room, and I ask the question again, what is Christian leadership? And then I'm thinking about it, and I'm praying, and finally, from the depths of my soul... And everything that God has brought me through over the last 10 years, three words emerge. And these three words are, leaders lead people. Thank you, thank you. No, I I was incredibly disappointed by this. (laughs) I appreciate the support. There's like Pastor Roland supporting me, somebody on this side, and the rest of us is like, is that it? (laughs) And I know that's the reaction, because that's my reaction. It's like, come on, man. You suck. What's wrong with you? And then I started to substitute different verbs or synonyms into the place of the word lead in the middle of that point. Leaders lead people, inspire people. Leaders move people. But then I realized that nothing could adequately fulfill that space. Nothing else could take the place of the word lead because no other single verb describes everything that a leader is called upon to do. Because there are moments in which a leader must inspire and move, motivate, guide, listen, counsel, love, woo, persuade. There are other moments in which a good leader should be able to correct, exhort, command, rebuke. There are, there are moments in which a leader must rise up and plan at the 30,000 foot level, as some people like to say. And there are also leaders in which a leader must be able to humble themselves and come face to face. Leaders must do all of these things. If you're doing any of these things right now, you're already starting to lead in some capacity. You might be leading in your home. You might be leading in your friendship circles, at your workplace. You're leading when you listen to people, when you encourage them, when you inspire them. You're leading when you correct someone. We can correct with grace, but it's necessary in leadership. Good leaders can do these things most of the time. Most of these things, most of the time. Great leaders can do all of these things when called upon, when necessary. But they are all things that describe a leader. And yet all of these different things have at least one thing in common. And that one thing is that it's impossible to do them all alone. I can only fire myself up in the mirror for so long before it's really weird. I had to do it a little bit this morning, just looking at myself, making eye contact. Do it! Do it. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Just wake up and get ready. and Do it. I have to stop because then it's not being a leader, it's being a loser. I'm not being wise, I'm being weird. So we need people. And this is something that Moses himself discovered. In his life, So we're going to read a passage for the early part of his life. This is Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We're going to read this together. Then we're going to go through a little bit of backstory. If you want to follow along on your phone, the notes are on our website, everynationlasvegas.org. Otherwise, it's here on the screen. It says this, one day after Moses had grown up, he went to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand, verse 13. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So how do we get here? Moses was born during a time of great tragedy for the Israelite people. Uh, They were growing in number while slaves in Egypt. And because of this, the pharaoh said, we are going to limit their power by limiting their population so they don't overthrow us. And what the pharaoh decided to do was commit a horrible atrocity and kill all the Hebrew boys. Now, his mother did not want Moses to suffer this fate, so she took a basket, she modified it so that it could float. She put Moses in the basket, and she put the basket in the Nile River. And then his, his, Moses' sister Miriam followed the basket to see what would become of Moses. And it's like God guided that basket as it floated next to a woman who was taking a bath. And this woman happened to be the daughter of Pharaoh. And she decided to adopt Moses. Now, why on earth would Pharaoh allow his daughter to adopt a little Hebrew after he decided to kill them all? Because as a father of two girls, sometimes you allow your daughters to get away with things. Sometimes. So Miriam jumps out of the bushes and says, Hey, I know the perfect Hebrew woman to nurse that child. And Moses was able to be raised by his mother as a part of Pharaoh's royal family. But he was still a part of the royal family. So it's very, very likely that he's got some kind of position and title. He has influence. He's high up in the orb chart. Whether he does something or not remains to be seen. But he's up there. And Egypt, of course, is the most powerful nation in the known world at this time, so they've got resources, they've got money. It's very likely, again, that Moses has chariots and land, horses. And then, on top of all of this, he has a cause. He has something to fight for, and we see it in that passage that we read. Because most people don't wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to go kill somebody. It's very likely that his mother and his sister are whispering the legacy of their people to Moses as he grows up, teaching him about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this love for his people develops in his heart, and it brews and brews and brews over time to where eventually he has a chance to go out and do something about it, and he thinks he's not going to be held accountable. And all this passion bursts forth, even if it bursts forth in the wrong way. So now Moses has position, title, resources, and the cause, and yet none of them make him a leader because the people that he's trying to impact are not willing to follow him. And now Moses kills an Egyptian man. People are finding out about it. He rightly concludes that Pharaoh is going to find out, and he does, and he gets angry. So Moses runs away from Pharaoh, from his family, and from any desire to lead. He runs 350 to 400 miles away to a place called Midian, and he lives a lonely, isolated life until God calls him. And when God calls him, he discovers that leaders lead people to a better place. So now Moses is on the second long stop of his journey, and it's like this definition is growing as we see his life unfold, because now Moses is there in Midian. He's married, but he doesn't have much. He's working as a shepherd over his father-in-law's flock. And one day, he takes the flock out to pasture to graze on the wonderful slopes of Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb also has another name, Mount Sinai. And it's here on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, that Moses sees an unusual sight. A bush is on fire, which is odd, but not completely unheard of in a desert. There are bushes that are dry. Maybe a lightning bolt came down. So weird, but possible. And yet this bush is different because this bush doesn't smell like it's being burnt up. It's not being consumed. It's not withering. And as Moses notices this, it's like the angel of the Lord appears to him. It says in Exodus chapter 3. And at this point, Moses turns around and he decides, I'm going to check this out. And as he turns... The voice of the Lord speaks to him and says, Take off your sandals, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses obeys and approaches. And this is what God says to Moses through this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Let's check it out.
1: The Lord said, I have
0: indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a figure of speech back then that referred to abundance. In other words, God is saying, I want to bring them out of a bad place, a bad place filled with slavery and misery, and I want to bring them into a better place, a place of abundance, a place of blessing, a place of prosperity, and most importantly, a place of covenant relationship with him. This is what God had promised them hundreds of years ago, 400 years ago and more. So now, Moses sets out to help God lead people to a better place. And it's weird. It's like we as people have a natural tendency to settle down. We want to get comfortable. And when we are comfortable in the place where we are, there's no reason for us to move to the next place. It is only when we have the idea the vision for something better, that we leave our comfort zones and we're willing to take the steps necessary to reach that better place. And that is the role of a leader. It is a leader's job to cast a vision, to inspire, to tell people about what better could be for them, what that better place could be, what a better way of living could look like, a better way of existing, a better way of relating, a better way of doing things. The leader paints the picture And then creates the picture. He takes people there, she takes people there on that journey to bring people to a better place. Most of you here have heard of John Maxwell. John Maxwell very well might be the world's leading expert on the topic of leadership. In fact, Inc. magazine named him the world's number one leader, or the world's number one author and teacher on the topic of leadership in 2014. He wrote classics like the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And actually, John Maxwell is a godly Christian leader. He was a former pastor. So here is what John Maxwell had to say about leadership, one of the many things he said. He said, a leader is someone who knows the way, shows the way, and goes the way. In other words, a leader leads people to a better place. But then the question becomes, if this place is so much better, If there really is a better way of being, a better way of doing things, a better way of existing, a better way of relating to God, a better way of meeting the needs of our heart, then why don't people just do it themselves? And if people could do it themselves, why is a leader necessary in the first place? And the answer to that question is because it's difficult. And leaders lead people through difficulty to a better place. If you read from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, and you can check your Bibles, that's a lot of pages. It's a long time. It was difficult for Moses and the people of Israel almost the entire way. That is a lot of difficulty. And you know, it can be sad and frustrating to watch them wandering in circles in the wilderness for 40 years. Why on earth did God tell us about all of this? I think one reason is that we can learn from the difficulties that Moses faced because we are bound to face them too, on any level. So let's think about the types of difficulty that we can expect to face. I think the first that we can expect to face, that we can all acknowledge at some level, is that we will have opponents. We're going to face opponents at some point. Moses leaves Midian. He takes his small family. He recruits his brother Aaron because he's too afraid to speak publicly. And now he speaks to the people of Israel, and they're fired up. And they're ready to go. But then Moses talks to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is not willing to let the Israelites go. And thus begins a pattern where Moses says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, No, 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 no. It's it's just growing up. It's like this huge musical, and it repeats itself over and over and over again. And in between each step of this process, God performs some kind of sign, wonder, or even sends a plague on Egypt. And after this plague, Pharaoh considers relenting. He considers releasing the people of Israel and freeing them from their slavery. But then he changes his mind again and again and again. And this process repeats itself until eventually God sends a final plague on the people of Egypt. And this final plague is that the firstborn sons throughout the kingdom of Egypt will be slain, they'd be killed. And you notice that this now forms a perfect parallel to what started the journey and life of Moses in the first place. Because the Egyptian Pharaoh killed the firstborns of the Israelites. And then God took the lives of the firstborns of Egypt. However, there's a big difference there because Pharaoh gave no one a chance. And God gave Pharaoh and the people of Egypt with him chance after chance after chance, moving in signs and wonders And it was after their complete and utter rejection and resistance to the Spirit of God and what he was doing that he judged them. Rightfully so. So now we find ourselves at this place where Moses has been opposed every single step along the way. And I think leaders can expect to be opposed, whether it be from people at the workplace who don't like some of the initiatives you're starting, Maybe somebody sees it a different way and you come and you butt heads with each other. It might happen again and again and again. You might try to lead at school, in your club, and people just have to gossip for whatever reason. They got to make stuff up. We'll all face opposition. And this opposition will often increase as the level of leadership increases, as the greatness of the cause increases, and as the call of God increases. And this is what happened to Christians in China. Now, I don't know how many of us know this, and it's something that I learned pretty recently myself, but missions to the nation of China actually flourished in the 19th and 20th century. There was a man named Hudson Taylor who was one of the first missionaries to China. He moved all the way from London to China. He first went there in 1854. And by the time he lost his life and died in China in about 1905, he had helped bring over 800 missionaries. He created 125 Chinese schools, helped raise up 500 Chinese leaders from that nation to serve in ministry, and ultimately saw 20,000 people give their lives to the Lord in his lifetime. And movements like this, started by Hudson Taylor, grew and grew and grew to the point where in 1949, there were about 1 million Christians in China. Of course, if you're familiar with history, you would also know that 1949 is when the Communist Revolution happened. The Chinese Communist Party came into power. And so did a man named Mao Zedong. He was one of the most evil men to ever live. Under Chairman Mao, the Chinese government officially advocated for state atheism. And part of this campaign for state atheism was to push out anyone who had faith. So they expelled all the foreign missionaries and they persecuted the local Christians. These persecutions included arrest, re-education camps, beating, and worse. And I don't want to talk about worse because it might trigger people, but... Our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, around the world today are facing opposition. And if we decide to lead, in any capacity, we will face opposition too. We can expect that kind of difficulty. We can also expect obstacles. So now, after this final plague in Egypt, Pharaoh decides to let the people of Israel go, and God calls Moses and the Israelites to follow him to the edge of the Red Sea and to just wait there. But now, there is a big obstacle in the way. And that's a problem, especially when Pharaoh and his armies change their mind one last time, and they go pursuing the Israelites, and now they have nowhere left to run. Sometimes our obstacles keep us from going where we think we are meant to go. At other times, these obstacles can prevent us from moving forward the way we want. Spoiler alert, but, you know, this happened thousands of years ago at this point, so I think it's safe to share it. They made it through the Red Sea. They get to the other side and now they're in a desert. And that's also an obstacle because they have a lot of people with them and there isn't a lot of food in the desert. There isn't a lot of water in the desert. So now this obstacle is slowing them and hindering them as they try to move forward. And then Moses has to judge all of these people. And at his father-in-law's advice, he has to administrate and appoint leaders to each of these tribes to help shoulder the burden of judging for all of these people. And then they have to travel with each other and create a tabernacle in the middle of the desert. All of these things are obstacles, and we will face obstacles too. Last night, I had an opponent who rose up against me. And the call of God as my wife tried to lead worship, and me as I prepared to share the word. And this opponent was our 11-month-old daughter. And she wouldn't sleep. And when she went back to sleep, I couldn't go back to sleep. And that was an obstacle too. But we can expect difficulty. And God carries us through our difficulty. And I think the final kind of difficulty that we can expect is worse than these other two. Because opponents come and go. And obstacles can be left behind us. But we can never escape ourselves. And we will face difficulty because of ourselves. Moses caused and created A lot of the difficulty he faced in his journey. God did not call him to kill that Egyptian in Exodus chapter 2. He caused that problem. I wonder if the people of Israel could have been delivered sooner had he not done that. I guess we can ask God in heaven. Or we can ask Moses. Hey man, (laughs) what was up with that? And then they go out into the wilderness, and God brings them back to Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses up the mountain. And as God is preparing to establish covenant relationship with his people, he writes out his commandments with his finger on two tablets of stone. So Moses comes down the mountain carrying these tablets. But as he looks out into the distance, he sees his brother Aaron, who is supposed to be essentially the vice president of Israel, leading the people to worship a golden calf that they created while Moses was up on the mountain. And so Moses was angry, but rightfully so, and yet he overreacted and took the two tablets made by God, and he dashes them against the ground and breaks it into pieces. Some of you know I'm a sports card collector. One of my, in fact, my favorite card right now is sign, it's a rookie autograph signed by the NFC Championship quarterback, Jalen Hurts. And I don't care how angry I get. I'm not throwing that at the ground. God writing the Ten Commandments is much bigger than Jalen Hurts signing an autograph. Moses had an anger issue. And he failed to grow. And he failed and he failed to where eventually in Exodus, or in Numbers chapter 20, excuse me, God tells Moses, provide for the people of Israel some water to drink by speaking to this rock. And yet Moses was upset that God was allowing him to stay with the people of Israel after all this time it was taking so long. And the people of Israel were complaining. And in his anger, one more time, Moses didn't listen to God. And instead of speaking to the rock, he took this staff that he's carried his entire journey, by the way. He takes the staff and he hits the rock. Strikes it twice. And God, being faithful, causes waters to burst forth. But then he leads Moses and he holds Moses accountable and says, because you did this and you broke faith with me and you didn't listen to me and you failed to grow, you will also fail to complete your call and lead the people into the promised land. So Moses failed to do what he was called to do. He got 95% of the way there and couldn't finish the journey and it's because he failed to grow. And I think we need to allow that to be a lesson to us. Because we all have limits. We're limited in our time and in our energy, in our mental capacity and our emotional energy. But we're also limited by our own character. We are limited by our own sin. And we can never be perfect, but we must be better. We cannot be like Moses and fail to grow. We must grow. And if you are called to lead at any level, then you must lead with your growth because we can grow in our character and we can grow to become more like Jesus. We can also grow in our capacity, in our competency. We can grow in our knowledge and our understanding. We can grow in our experience. We must lead with our growth. And if you want to lead a group of people that grows, whether that's your family, you want to lead a small group that grows, You want to lead a team at work that grows. People are inspired to grow when they see the leader grow. So we should lead with our growth and overcome the difficulty that we cause ourselves. And thankfully, because of Jesus, we have the ability to do that. So leaders lead people through difficulty, whether that's through opposition, through obstacles, or through ourselves to a better place. And yet at this point, this definition of leadership only describes leadership. Anybody can lead this way. There's nothing unique about Christian leadership or godly leadership in any way that separates it from this style of leadership. Here is what separates Christian leadership. This is what Christian leadership really looks like. If we look at the life of Moses, Christian leaders, godly leaders, lead people through difficulty to a better place with They walk with God along the way, and that is what ultimately separated Moses. God was with Moses from the moment his mom put him in that basket, sovereignly guiding him to be adopted by Pharaoh, avoiding his death, coming up in the wilderness, leading the people from Egypt through the wilderness. God walked with Moses. God marked the life of Moses. His presence was with Moses. Moses was so desperate for the presence of God that in Exodus chapter 33, he responds to God and says, do not send us up from here if your presence will not go with us. If you are not with me, then I don't even want to go. I don't want to lead anymore. I don't want to serve anymore. If you won't go with me, what's the matter? I can't do it without you because it's you who carries me beyond each limit. So God was faithful faithful in walking with Moses, even to the point of his death. And here's what happened when Moses died. This is in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 34. Let's read this together. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab. As the Lord had said, he buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite beth Beor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Who buried Moses? Why is it that no one knows where Moses is buried? God buried Moses. As far as we're aware, God gave Moses an honor that no other human on this earth ever experienced, and that is God personally conducting his funeral. So Moses now, in spite of his own failures, walked with God. And when he reached the limit of his character, he reached the limit of his life. God carried him beyond his limits. And when we walk with God, he carries us beyond our limits. Every time the people of Israel reached a limit of some sort, God carried them past it. When they reached the limit because of Pharaoh, God carried them past Pharaoh. And when they reached the limit at the Red Sea, God carried them past the Red Sea. He opened it up so that people could walk through on dry land on either side. When they reached limits in the desert regarding their capacity in feeding people and giving them something to drink, God carried them past their limits. And finally, when Moses reached his own limits, God carried on his legacy. A few verses after this, it says that no one had ever rose in Egypt, in Israel, who was a leader quite like Moses. And God carried on the work of Moses. And even though Moses wasn't there as they crossed into the promised land, God was. And God completed that work. When we walk with God, God carries us beyond our own limits. And that's what our family in China is experiencing right now. So again, in 1949, there were one million Christians in China. You would expect that under heavy persecution, that number would fall. Historically, that's what happens. But that's not what happened. In 2020, the Chinese government admitted, in spite of the fact that they advocate for state atheism, that there were 38 million Christians in China, according to the government. That means there's a lot more. The Economist magazine estimated that there were as many as 22 million other Christians worshipping God in underground house churches. That is where our every nation family worships God. We don't talk about them because we don't want them to get caught. So we'll talk about somebody else. One of the leaders that rose out of the Chinese house church movement was a man that's known as Brother Yun. Brother Yun wrote an autobiography called The Heavenly Man. It's a title that came because he refused to share his own name when questioned by the CCP in order to protect other Christians. And he would only respond, I am a heavenly man. I'm a heavenly man. So then they take this heavenly man and they throw him into jail. And on one of his incarcerations, there were three He says that he was fasting and praying one night when the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And the Holy Spirit said to him, go walk out of this prison. So Brother Yun gets up and he walks to the gate of his cell and the gate opens. And then he thinks, well, if this continues and they see me, they're just going to shoot me. And yet he decides to walk by faith anyway. So he continues to walk. And every door and every gate along the way opens up for him. And people see him but it's like they stare right through him. And he continues to walk and walk until he's free. And of course, the Chinese government denies this ever happened. However, apparently, some of these prison guards have been fired. I wonder why. And Brother Yun is living today as a Christian leader in exile, actually. He's living in Germany. But they met their limits. Brother Yun met his limit, and God carried them past those limits. And when we lead with God when we're obedient to him, when we attempt to lead people to a better place and closer to him, that is when God meets with us at our limit and he carries us beyond it. And that's exactly what Jesus promised to do. Ezekiel come up. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's a great commission. And I call the next line the great promise. It's my favorite part. He says, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. If we commit ourselves to leading people through difficulty to a better place with God, God can walk with us and God can be with us to carry us when we meet our limits and to take us beyond them. So what is Christian leadership? And how do we start leading like Moses? Godly leader, a Christian leader, leads people through difficulty to a better place with God. And we're able to do that with God because God came to us. As Christians, we believe that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And his name was Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die for our sin in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead and that proved he was the son of God. And after he rose from the dead, he offers the free gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins to all those who repent and believe in him. And as we carry that gospel message, we lead people in a way That lasts forever. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you loved us and you want to be with us, and you invite us all in some way with some group of people to lead. And I pray, oh God, that you would help us to lead with you. So, Lord, for each one here, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to identify the ways in which we are able to lead in this season and the next. Show us how we can lead a little more like you, how we can get through the difficulties we're facing, including the ones we cause for ourselves, and carry us beyond every limit we face. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in this place and you want to make that decision to be with God, there's only one way to do it. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to walk with God, then you need to do it through Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know about him, but you might not know him personally, directly. You want to. Then on the count of three, would you just raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to know Jesus. I want to be a Christian. I want to walk with him. One, two, three. Is that anybody here? Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. I see you. I see you over there. Anybody else? If that's you this morning, then I want you to repeat after me, and the church will repeat along with us. It's because the Bible says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. So this just helps you confess that belief out loud. So please repeat after me. The church will repeat too. Say, Father in heaven, I believe that you sent Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you lived a perfect life, died for me, for my sin, on the cross, but you rose again three days later. Help me to live for you. Help me to walk with you. Help me to lead with you. In your name, Jesus, amen.